kids, they're great, huh? You see those faces? Man, one thing I love about kids is if we worship and sang like some of those kids were going right now, do you see them just giving everything they had? I love that. Kids have this amazing way of just reminding us of the way things ought to be. And that's, I, I just love uh, working with kids. I love having kids. Uh, they're one of the true blessings of life. Um, we're, Lori and I are really glad to be here. Joe, thanks for being so gracious. You guys have been served well by Joe over this time. Joe and Charlotte, haven't you? And, um, as a pastor, I can really respect the man who has been faithful to the task over the decades. So, Joe, uh, your reward is great, my friend, on, on a number of levels. Um, yeah, I was thinking about kids and how my kids have always been reminding me of things that are significant. Just several months ago, uh, I saw my son uh, reading a book. It was, uh, this is going to date me a little bit. Remember Choose Your Own Adventure books? Anybody remember reading any of those growing up? Yeah, a few of you do, right? For those of you who don't know what they are, they're these books. They're usually fiction or historical fiction where you read it, and at the bottom of the page, you get to choose what action you want to pursue, and then the narrative pursuit goes on in that direction. So if you want to go slay the dragon, you turn to page 48. If you want to save the damsel in distress, you go to 53 or something like that. And then the story either ends because the dragon eats you or burns you, or it continues because the, the, the damsel finds you cute, kind of a thing like that, right? So my son was reading one of these on the Revolution. War, and he did what I guarantee the guys who raised their hands and I did. When the dragon burns you to a crisp, you go, oh, back it up, and I'm going to choose the other path, right? And, and, and he did this several times, and I'm just watching him go, and you can see it on his face, wrong choice, back up, new, next one. And I thought, ah, profound parental pastoral moment. I said, son, let me just tell you, the great thing about these books is you can choose. But you know, in real life, you got to live with the consequences of your choice. And so that's why it's so important that we choose wisely. And, you know, I just thought this was just like the Shekinah global, profound truth coming to my son. And he goes, okay, can I get back to my book now? All right, fine. <laughs> you know, as a parent, I'm worried that my sons and daughter will make some of the foolish choices that dad did growing up. Some of the foolish choices that you have made growing up. And the reality is that's just part of life, isn't it? We are going to make foolish choices. Um, when I was nine, I wanted to be what every nine-year-old probably wants to be, and that was an action movie director. Yeah? I wanted to be Steven Spielberg. And what do you need in an action movie? Stunts, explosions. So what do you need is stuntmen. So at the age of nine, I opened up the Roadheaver School of Stunt Training, and I had all the kids in the neighborhood come over to my house. And I remember wanting to train them in all the things necessary, how to fall off of a roof, how to get run over, how to take a javelin in the chest. So I had all these ideas. We had a roof uh, but right next to a hill, so it was only a four-foot drop, but kids would push other kids off that hill. They'd roll down the hill, fall off the hill onto the concrete where my dog Scrappy was waiting to pounce on them. So we had that going on over there. I had kids in the yard. We had these wooden uh, dowly sticks, and they were throwing at each other and practicing dodging these javelins. And then I had other kids learning how to run over by a bicycle. And so we had all this chaos going on, and it felt like Disneyland and the Lord of the Flies all together at once. And I remember standing on the top of the carport. In, in Hawaii, we don't have garages, we have carports. Seeing all this mayhem taking place and feeling so much pride that I had put this all together until mom drove up into the driveway. And she saw kids being pushed off her roof 
kids having javelins thrown at them in her yard and kids getting run over by bikes on her driveway. Right? We make foolish choices, and I had to live with the consequence of that one. The kids in the neighborhood thought I was great, but I was grounded for about a month. As I got older, my choices didn't get that much better. At 20, I left my island home, moved to Los Angeles to be a rock star. Live with that choice, too. Some things don't turn out the way you want them. One thing we all have in common this morning here is we, all of us, every day, have choices to make. And they're all over the spectrum. They can range from the the trivial to the significant, from the immaterial to the material, from the temporal to the eternal. But we all have to make choices. To choose not to make a choice is actually a choice. And in our culture, in our time, unlike other generations, because of technology and transportation and all these things, we have more choices than we know what to do with. As a matter of fact, We have so many choices, people are paralyzed from making a choice. You've heard it said, what if I make the wrong choice, right? So having more options has not made things easier. It's actually made things more difficult for us. So here's my question. What if there was one choice that you could make that would put all your other choices into perspective? What if there was one path that you could take that would guarantee that all the other paths you would take would be to your benefit and not your peril? What if there was one course you could navigate that would would always guarantee safe harbor? You say, well, sign me up. What is that one choice? Well, that choice, that very idea is exactly what wisdom literature in the Old Testament is all about. Wisdom literature is that chunk of books in the middle section of your Old Testament going from the book of Job all the way to the book of Song of Solomon. Through all the stories and all the complexities and all the parables and proverbs, what it's getting at is at the end of the day, there is one fundamental choice humanity needs to make. That if that choice made correctly, would ensure that all other choices would be put in their proper place. So we're going to look at Psalm 1 this morning that clearly brings that up. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Psalm. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 448. Before we jump in, let me pray, and then I'll read the Psalm, and we'll dig into our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your gift. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the way you have blessed us with all these things. Father, we thank you that we could come this morning without fear of persecution, to be able to worship you, to read your word, to sing unto you, and to be blessed. Spirit, would you give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us this morning? We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked, verse 4, are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's pretty amazing how much can be packed into so little, huh? Even though Psalm 1 is only six verses long, 
the themes that this psalm talks about are the themes that the entire scriptures talk about. Did you notice in these six verses, it talks of people, it talks of paths, and it talks of ultimate destinations. It beautifully and accurately breaks all of life down into one simple choice. Now, if you're a Christian, you're probably on board with that. But if you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian, you might be tempted to think, okay, here's some of that simplistic evangelical thinking, thinking that life is all about one choice. Life is not that easy. Life is actually very complex. I just want to address that because that's a fair statement to make. Now, I'm not confusing something that's simple from being simplistic. So I have here my iPhone, and my 81-year-old mother can operate my iPhone. This is an amazingly simple device. But you'd be wrong to believe that an iPhone is a simplistic piece of electronic, right? This is actually amazing. There's amazing complexity that allows for the simplicity of this device. So there's a difference between something that's simple and there's something that's simplistic. And secondly, I don't want you to confuse because I'm not confusing something that's simple from something that's easy, right? For example, you have a a 24-hour fitness gym down the street here. Now, I could go down there and, well, I don't know if I could, but I could try to do three sets of 25 pull-ups. And from a mechanical perspective, that's a simple thing to do. But if you've ever tried to do three sets of 25 pull-ups, you know that it might be mechanically simple, but it's an extremely hard thing to do. Just because something is simple doesn't mean that it's easy. And so when I say that life can be broken down to one simple choice, I'm not saying that it's not complex, nor that am I saying that it's easy. But it actually is rather simple, and that's what Psalm 1 and wisdom literature is trying to push us to. And so we're going to see that this morning. Our our chapter breaks down into nice three sections, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6. The choice before us in verse 1 and 2, the consequence of that choice in verse 3 and 4, and the conclusion of that choice in verses 5 and 6. So that's how we're going to look at it. Let's start it. Verse 1. Blessed is the man, the psalmist writes, and he knows what he's doing because he starts the psalm, the first psalm in the entire book of Psalms, which was the songbook of the nation of Israel, with the word to grab people's attention. Now, in our culture, the word blessed doesn't quite have the same meaning. To us, the question might sound more familiar if it was this. uh, Would you want to have significance? Do you want to be fulfilled? Do you want well-being? Do you want your life to have a point? It's the same kind of concept getting asked here. The the psalmist writes that way, starts that way, hoping that the reader will say, well, how? I want to be blessed. How? And he says it right here in verse 1 in two ways, one negatively and one positively. Negatively, this man or woman is blessed simply because of the things they are avoiding. Do you notice that? They're not in the counsel of the wicked. They're not standing with the sinners. They're not seated with the scoffers. The righteous person avoids all this dimension of wickedness, and that in itself is a source of blessing. He doesn't walk in that way. He doesn't stand in that way. He doesn't take a stand for the things they take a stand for. He doesn't sit down and have fellowship and communion with them. On the other hand, the righteous delights in the word of God and meditates in it day and night. Let me just make a distinction here because it's easy to miss. In our culture, when you hear the word wicked and righteous, we tend to think, well, uh, that's not me. Uh, certainly not wicked, right? I- I'm a Christian after all, so it doesn't apply to me. Or you might not be a Christian. You might say, well, at least I'm moral, so you can't call me wicked at least, 
right? I'm not doing all the bad things I possibly could be doing right now, right? I'm a moral person. But in wisdom literature, that's not the meaning of the word wicked. See, if that's what we're thinking, when we read wisdom literature, we're going to miss a lot of what's there. When the wisdom literature talks about the wicked and the righteous, they're not necessarily talking about actions I do or don't do. What they're talking about is a general orientation of life. The wicked person lives life as in, with no reference to who God is. The wicked person in wisdom literature lives as if they have no obligation to their creator. Functionally speaking, they live their life as an autonomous being with no concern for anything else beyond themselves. Now, when you look at it from that definition, you can be what our culture calls a Christian who goes to church and still be wicked. Because you can have the external trappings of religion, but if in your life, your primary point of reference aren't the things of God, if you don't live as if you have an obligation to your creator, that's the definition of the wicked. Because the most wicked thing you can do in a creation is to live as if there is no creator. So even if you're a moral person, given this definition of wickedness, you could still be in that camp. Because if your morality is not driven by the things of God and love for God, your morality can be driven by a desire to be accepted in your community and to have the respect of other people and not out of a love for your creator. I just want to say that because we don't use these terms this way that today. Right? As a matter of fact, we use the term wicked in exactly the opposite way, right? Dude, that's wicked. That's wicked. Cool. That's not what wicked means. And so I just want to say that in wisdom literature, the thing that determines the wicked and the righteous is to the degree to which you live in reference to God. The degree to which you live with an obligation to your creator. And that's what they're getting at here. So the blessed man is, not, is avoiding the life that ignores God completely, but positively. So negatively, he's not doing something, but positively, he is doing something else. In verse 2, he's delighting in the law of the Lord, and in it, he meditates day and night. This is another world of focus. Did you notice the verbs being used? He walks, he, he stands, he sits, and there's this progression that his life is progressively more and more being one thing or another. Unlike the wicked who lives without reference to God, he lives with reference to God, so much so that you see it that he delights day and night in God's word and the things of God. Now, that's not saying you have your quiet time in the morning and then you pray at night. It does include that. What he's doing is saying these are the point ends of a day. The person who's blessed, man, when he wakes up, and did you hear it in, I don't know if it was one of Adam's prayers or songs, he was talking about waking up thinking about the things of God, and going to bed, commuting with God. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. He delights. This is the attitude that he has. It's, it's his inward orientation. Man, I love that word delight. We don't use it that often in our culture, that we delight in something. But you realize what we delight in reveals a lot about the kind of people we are. Right? That, that's why we ask, when we're getting to know people, we ask them what their hobbies are. Because it reveals a lot of who they are. What we delight in reveals our hearts. Could someone see in your life that you delighted in the things of God? Could someone recognize your life as someone who delights in the things of God by the way you live? Right? He says that the, the, the one who's blessed delights and meditates. The meditation speaks of the action. If the delight is the attitude, the meditation is the action. If the delight is how I am on the inside, the meditation is what it shows on the outside. 
And the word in the original text here is interesting. Um, It doesn't capture, forgive me, I keep forgetting to push the PowerPoint here. It doesn't quite capture the idea. The word's hagah. And the word picture in Hebrew is of a cow, believe it or not. Uh, Not a very glamorous picture. You ever see a, a cow eating? Right? You drive up the five, you go to San Francisco or something, and you might see in some of the pasture lands, cows eating. They take their time, don't they? They are really methodical about chewing. You know, they chew it, and they're enjoying it, and they're taking their time. And then if you watch them long enough, they actually swallow it. And then you, if you're watching, you notice they're chewing again. Because what's going on, if you don't know cow anatomy, they have several stomachs. They digest it into one stomach, regurgitate it back through that, up up from that stomach, and chew it again. The reason being is they've probably missed some morsel, some sweetness, and so they're going to work on that piece again. That's the idea in the original text on this concept of meditate. That it's not something that we just eat wolf down and we're done with. It's something that we take our time and we just get everything out of it that we can. And when you think you're done, you've got actually more to get out of it. And so the, the word picture of, a, of this cow bringing that back up to chew on it again. Uh, J.I. Packer says this in his book, Knowing God. I love it. It says this, meditation is often a matter of arguing with oneself. I love the way he thinks about this. Reasoning oneself out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. See, Packer got understood something about human nature. That even though I have been a Christian for 25 years, I still don't love the things I ought to love the way I ought to love them. And I need to argue with myself. I need to reason myself out of moods of doubt and unbelief, because that's what it is, into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. That's meditation. And that doesn't happen when you just read through something quick and you're done for the day. That happens because there's a lifestyle of putting it before you and thinking about it. And that's what Packer says is meditation. And that's what the psalmist says, this man is blessed. Paul would say the same thing in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, right? Therefore, since you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is. This is another lifestyle of immersion and focus kind of like the wicked, but the focus is on something altogether different. And the seriousness of this investigation is seen in the duration night and day. This person delights in God's word. Now, what does this look like? Are there examples in our life of people who delight in something so much that their lives are transformed by it? People that delight in something so much that they'll discipline themselves to do something. We see it all the time. You go to the beach early in the morning, you'll see the surfers out there early in the morning with their surfboards, looking out at the sets coming in. What they're doing is, it's called the dawn patrol. They love it so much that they'll get up in the cold, in the dark, and get into that water to get those sets. You see it when you see people jogging early in the morning. They want to get into shape, and they delight in being in shape so much, they're willing to discipline themselves to get up and go jogging that early in the morning. There are examples all around us. A great little legend from church history comes from about a man named Polycarp, and he was renowned for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was a very pious church father. Secondly, he was a direct disciple of John the Apostle. Now, this is legend, mind you, but it was, it's a well-known legend that a young man came to Polycarp and desired that Polycarp would disciple him like John had discipled Polycarp. 
And Polycarp, as you can imagine, was probably pretty busy getting a lot of these requests. So he denied the young man. He said, young man, I take few men to be disciples because few men know the cost of discipleship. I'm not going to disciple you. But I encourage you still live for the Lord. Well, this young man was not going to be put off, so he pursued Polycarp. He says, Polycarp, if you don't disciple me, how will I grow? How will I know the things of God and how I'll be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ unless you're my discipler? So Polycarp said, okay, this, this guy's got a little of enthusiasm. He says, okay, I'll take you as my disciple, but first I must baptize you. So the young man said, absolutely, there's a river right here. Let's get this done. So he goes into the river with Polycarp. Polycarp kind of grabs him in traditional baptism, puts him under the water. But unlike traditional baptism, he doesn't raise him back up immediately. He holds him under the water. So the young man's sitting there thinking, oh, okay, uh, I'll roll with this. Not kind of what I expected. I'm fine. Well, seconds turn into tens of seconds into 30 seconds, and the young man starts to panic because he didn't take, he wasn't thinking he had to hold his breath. He was just getting baptized. Well, little did he realize that 30 seconds goes into 45 seconds. He kind of gives a nudge on Polycarp, and he realizes at that point, Polycarp's actually holding him under the water. So the young man starts to panic. 45 seconds gives to a minute. The edges of his vision start to turn black. He begins to lose consciousness. So he's thrashing. Polycarp's holding him under the water, and just as this man knocks out, Polycarp lifts him out of the water. Young man just grabs onto his shoulders. He's heaving for breath. He's sputtering water out. He's just almost passed out. He's staggering. And Polycarp whispers in his ear. He says, young man, you, when you want to love the master like you just wanted air, then you're ready to be discipled. Wow. But that's what the psalmist is saying here. That's the man that's blessed, that without which, it's like, it's like the air in his lungs, the blood in his veins, if he doesn't have the things of God, he is adrift in a world of opinion and relativism. He wants God's word to anchor him. This is the man that's blessed. This word of complete fulfillment uh, of, of the, the, the Hebrews call it shalom. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of absolute peace significance and, and meaning. It's totally different from our modern notions of what we would call happiness, right, which is mostly externally determined. If I um, have enough academic prestige, if I've got enough career advancement, if my 401k is uh, big enough, if I get enough likes on my Facebook posts, right, if people are retweeting, retweeting my, uh, my Twitter uh, statements, but those things have nothing to do with true happiness. Biblically speaking, true happiness doesn't come from the freedom to do whatever you want, right? That's the cultural air we breathe, that true happiness should come from getting what you want and doing what you like. But that's not the biblical notion of happiness. The biblical notion of happiness is actually that true happiness doesn't come from freedom, it comes from obedience, and this is countercultural to our world, and this is actually one of the things that makes Christianity so different. We don't believe that we get happy because we get what we want. We believe we get happy because we do what we ought. Now, this may seem odd, but think about it for a second. You hear it now more often than you did before, but when people come back from vacation, what do you hear people oftentimes saying? Man, that was a good vacation, but... I need a vacation from my vacation. You ever heard someone say that? Right. It's because on vacation, what we try to do is cram as much of the things we want to do in this short, limited amount of time, and as a result, we're not feeling refreshed or rested. We're actually just as exhausted as before we went on vacation. 
Now compare that with an experience you might have had serving at a, a food bank or a soup kitchen. Yeah, it could be just as hard, it could be just as tiring, but don't you notice if you've ever done that, there's a significant sense of well-being that you feel. That even though you're tired and even though it might have been hard, that you feel it deep down inside of you that this was the right thing to do. My point is this. Happiness doesn't come from the freedom to, to get what we want and do what we want. Happiness comes really from the freedom to be obedient to the things we ought to be doing. You get that, and you're going to get much of what Christianity teaches. And, and here's the thing. That's what the good life used to mean, right? A good life used to mean a life of, of clear moral duty, living rightly before God and man. Whether or not you would have called yourself a Christian, this was the cultural understanding of a good life. Now, a good life means what? Having all the owlclads in your kitchen, beamers in your garage, right? Plasma TVs in your living room, right? If that's too right-wing or materialistic for you, a good life might be being eco-friendly, organic living, small carbon footprint, right? Either way, that's not what the good life ought to be. A good life ought to be in obedience to God. And as a culture, we are paying the price for being untethered from that reality. I want to read to you uh, an article, a a little bit from an article I got uh, from the American Psychologist. And it's astounding. When I read this article, I thought, boy, they, they understand our culture. And here it is. The article is entitled, Why the Self is Empty. It was written by psychologist Philip Cushman. And he writes this. This is just a paragraph from it. The empty self is filled up with consumer goods, calories, experiences, politicians, romantic partners, and empathetic therapists. The empty self experiences a significant absence of community, tradition, and shared meaning, a lack of personal conviction and worth, and it embodies all these absences as a chronic, undifferentiated emotional hunger. Okay, that was a lot of stuff packed in that one paragraph. Basically, what he's saying is, because our, as a society, we become unmoored from what makes us what we are, that we're trying to fill ourselves up with anything we can, and it's, our hunger's insatiable. He says there are three characteristics of the empty self. Number one, the empty self is inordinately individualistic. They are a self-contained individual who defines his or her own life goals, values, and interests as though he or she were a human atom, isolated from others with little need or responsibility to live for the concerns of the broader community, right? Secondly, he says that the anti-self is infantile. What he means by this is they are controlled by infantile cravings and constantly seeking to be filled up with and made whole by food, entertainment, and consumer goods, Such a person is preoccupied with sex, physical appearance, and body image, and tends to live by feelings and experiences. And then the last characteristic they say that has come to mark our culture is that they're hurried and busy. The empty self is gorged with activities and noise because there is a deep emotional emptiness and hunger, and because it has devised inadequate strategies to fill that emptiness, a frenzied pace of life emerges to keep the pain and emptiness suppressed. One must jump from one activity to another and not be exposed to quiet for very long or the emptiness will become too apparent. Wow. Now, I hope when you hear that, you're not just saying, yep, that's wrong with our culture. 
I hope you're also saying, oh, that's wrong with me. I do that too. I loved what we did during our sung worship period where we were actually silent. Where in our culture today can you go where people will gather and actually be quiet? No notification ringing, no phones going off, no this, no that, no Facebook posts, no tweets coming in. Our worlds are filled with that, isn't it? And it, it's as if we need it. We, we simultaneously don't want to live that way, but we need it. And where do we go except within a church? And unfortunately, it's actually, you're losing it in churches too because churches are time to the minute to entertain you, to keep you engaged, to keep you interested because you're a consumer and if you don't like what you're consuming, you'll go to the church down the street. Oh, that is not good for the human soul. And that we actually sat and were quiet to where it was almost awkward. Now, if you were doing what Adam said, you were looking inside going, man, is there sins in my life I need to confess? You can't do that when you're constantly hurried and busy. So I believe that that was deliberate on Adam's part to further the worship experience, not to make you feel awkward, but to actually bring you into something more than what you're used to. The answer to the empty self of our culture is not the the authentic self of popular culture. It's not the self-esteem self of psychological culture. It's the crucified self of Scripture that realizes that, man, I've been forgiven of my sins by a holy God and not because of anything I had done or earned, but because he of his own initiative extended salvation to me out of grace. And that transforms the landscape of my life. You see, Psalm 1 is simply a poetic reminder of what God had stated to the nation of Israel. If you're a note taker, write down Deuteronomy 28. A very significant time. Moses had the people of Israel uh, separate into two camps. On the one mountain, Ebal, and on the other mountain of Gerizim. And they were to respond to each other the blessings that flowed from obedience. And then they were to recite the curses that would flow from disobedience. Right? So the blessings that flowed from a life that lived in reference to God and the curses that would come from a life that totally ignored God. Psalm 1 is a reminder of what Joshua said to the people of Israel in Joshua 24.15. Sorry, I know that's fast. Joshua 24.15. When Joshua's about to pass away, he gets the nation before him. He says, Israel, listen up. You need to choose today. Will you go after the things of God Or will you go after the gods of the Canaanites? Make your choice. And in the wisdom literature, we see it again in Psalm 1. So in the book of Deuteronomy, it represents the law. In the book of Joshua, it represents all the history books. In the book of Psalm, it represents the wisdom literature. All through the Old Testament, we see that it comes down to this one choice. The choice is, will I live my life in reference to God, in obligation to my creator, or will I live my life without reference to him? and do my own thing. Regardless of what we might choose, there is a consequence, and that brings us to our second point. The consequences of our choice are found in verses three and four, and I love what the author does here. He uses two word pictures to help us understand this. Look at verse three. He, talking about the man in verse two, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Doesn't that sound pretty good to you? It does to me. 
Keep in mind, folks, in the nation of Israel, who originally read this, they lived in an arid desert environment. It's not like they drove down the five and could see all of our sprinkled lawns and all that. To see a tree that was green, that was growing, and that was bearing fruit, that was a picture of salvation right there. And so when the psalmist says, the one who's got his eye focused on the things of God, that he is living his life in reference to him, he understands his creator and he has obligations to him, even if he does it imperfectly. The person who's living that way consistently, delighting in him, meditating on him, you know what that person's like? That person's like that tree that you've seen by the oasis. Green, beautiful, and fruit just coming off of it. Get this. That kind of life is not just a reward That kind of life is the result of verses one and two, of excuse me, verse two. You want to have that life where it's prosperous and flourishing and and, and not withering and bearing fruit. Then you be the person in verse two that delights in the things of God and meditating day and night. Just as a tree will inevitably be green and bearing fruit. That will be the case for the person who delights in the things of God. That's the point the psalmist is making. That it's a natural law of nature still, con- still consistent in spiritual laws. And we see that exemplified in when, when you see trees with streams of water. So the question we've got to ask ourselves as we're reading this is, what, what are the streams that are feeding your soul? What are the things that you look to for life? And are they giving you life? We look for life in so many things that don't give life, don't we? And we're desperate for it. The empty self is dying for something to fill them up. So the question we have to ask is, what are the streams that feed our soul? Man, this might take us too long, but I gotta read it because Jesus is telling us right now. John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this, same metaphors, right? I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser takes away. But every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone, verse six, does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. You ever seen a fruit tree struggling to bear fruit? You ever see a fruit, an apple tree going, come on, I just need apples. Come on, one or two apples there. They never do that. Why? Because producing apples is a natural thing when you're plugged into those streams of water. It just happens. What Jesus is saying is, look, you can have all your 40 days to health reading programs. You can do your five ways to do this, three steps to do that in life. But if you're not just abiding, and Psalm 1 is giving us an illustration of what that looks like, if you're just not delighting in me, 
no matter what programs you put into place, it's going to be like stapling apples on an apple tree. Because the person who abides in Christ bears fruit because Christ is bearing that fruit through them. But unfortunately, verse 4, so verse 3 is, this is what it's going to look like to abide, to delight in the things of God. Verse 4, this is what it looks like to live without reference to God. The wicked are not like this way, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Now, I know most of you this morning did not think about winnowing chaff and wheat, and you may not even know what that is. In ancient Israeli culture, they would sift wheat in these uh, kind of like uh, grids, wooden with a, like a little filter there, on top of a hill. So what, when the wind would blow, they would kind of throw it in the air, and all the good kernels of substance would fall back into their grid, but all the useless, immaterial things that they didn't need, the wind would just blow it away. That was called the chaff. It was useless. You, you want to get rid of it. And the psalmist is saying, the man or woman who lives their life autonomously, as if God didn't make a difference, their life is like chaff. They're just blown away. Notice the contrast in these two verses. It's striking between a fruitful tree and useless chaff. Between well-watered stability and dry, wind-blown impermanence. See, whether or not you are a Christian, this is something that we all want in life. We don't want to be wind-blown. We don't want our lives marked by impermanence. It's just dust. We want to flourish. And what the Scriptures have been teaching all through the Old Testament and Psalm 1 is that the way to that flourishing is delighting in the things of God. Well, that's the, the consequence of that choice. Will I live in reference to God or will I not live in reference to God? The consequence is I'll, I'll either be like this flourishing tree or I'm going to be like this chaff that gets blown away. And there's a conclusion to the choice in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, um, the idea here that the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What He's referring back to the scoffers of verse 1. They won't be able to make their case before the Lord. They won't be able to stand up when they are justly judged. They can't give a good answer for why they live without reference to their creator. There is nothing we can say about the world we look around us to say that, no, this all just happened by accident. Right? You've all heard the argument of the watch and the watchmaker. You, if you find a watch on, this, on, the sea, on the beach, you don't assume that somehow over the years it developed and evolved into itself. You understand that there was a designer there. He, uh, nature itself, Romans 1 tells us, proclaims that there is a creator. And the person who lives without reference to God, in the end, will have no argument to stand on. No argument whatsoever. Verse uh, 6, But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. I love that. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The idea of knowing in Hebrew is an intimate knowledge. It's not just cognitive information. It's I know something experientially. And you'll see this theme all through the Old Testament, excuse me, in the wisdom literature, the way of the wise and the way of the fool, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. It's all about the way. Now, in our culture, we don't even think about knowing the way someplace, right? You just open up your GPS, you pop it in, and you get there. Right? But in their culture, if you, know the, if you knew the way to someplace, that was valuable information. If you knew the way to someplace good, man, you were, you were the guy we wanted to be with because you know how to get there. 
See, that's completely lost in our culture, right? Before we had GPS, we used Thomas guides or whatever. So finding the way someplace, we don't even think about it. But in that culture where you walked everywhere, if you knew the way to someplace good, I want to be with you. And so the, the, the psalmist is saying, the Lord knows the way of the righteous because the Lord's on that way. But the way of the wicked shall perish, not because the Lord doesn't know the way, but just simply because the Lord's not on that way. So we need to land this. We need to ask ourselves, what am I delighting in? What are the things that you delight in? And we delight in all kinds of crazy things, some that have actual significance, but many that don't. Have you ever been to an Anaheim baseball game and seen the rally monkey? Right, yeah, that's delight, right? It's just not the kind of delight that really matters. What are you delighting in? What are those streams that are feeding your soul? Because all of us are pulling sustenance from something, right? Please don't make it religion that you draw your sustenance from. Nothing could be more life-taking than religious practice without a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Please don't make it materialism. Nothing could be less life-giving than having to have the newest stuff because as soon as you attain the newest one, the newer one just comes out. (laughs) Please don't look for your life in relationships. Don't look for people to be your total soul substance. Nothing could be more life-taking than depending on people who are as fallen as you to give you life, right? All these things, though, religious practices, Christianity, our, our consumer goods, relationships can only be enjoyed fully when we have the right thing in the right place at the right time in the right way. And that is living with reference to God, understanding that I'm a creature and he's my creator. Now you may be saying, well, okay, how does that happen? And if uh, you're still in John, go to John chapter 14. Jesus answers this very question. He just let the disciples know some frightening news that he was going to go away. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled, he says in verse one. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then verse four, he says, and you know the way, there's that word again. You know the way to where I'm going. Thomas doesn't have a GPS, doesn't have a Thomas guide. He, he says, Lord, no, we, we don't know the way you are going. How can we know the way? And that famous verse, Jesus says, Thomas, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then after that, in one chapter, he would say, and you want to be on the way? The way you are on the way is you abide in me. You see, because if you hear me saying today that the blessed man or woman is the one that's so consumed with the things of God and all these practices, you're only going to hear half the gospel message because even that's a death sentence because none of us in this room can desire and delight the things of God the way we ought to, can we? No, we can't. That wasn't a rhetorical question. We can't. So if my hope is in my desiring and delighting in God enough, I don't have hope because I'm not going to, and neither will you. My true hope is that there came a man who did delight and desire the things of God in every way perfectly. And he says to you and I, you can have my perfect delight and desire in God. You can have my righteousness. And guess what? I'll take from you your failures for not delighting the way you should have. 
That's what Jesus did on the cross. And that's why Jesus says, you want to know the way? You want to be on the way? Abide in me. Oh, don't hear. Pastor Rick, that new guy was saying, we got to work harder, delight harder, and meditate more. In one sense, hear that, but also hear, we can't do it. That's why Jesus did. And if we want to be the blessed man or woman of Psalm 1, then we got to look to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you delighted in the heavenly Father at all times in all ways. And Jesus, we ask that you'd forgive us because we don't. But that's exactly why you did on our behalf so that we could have life and have it abundantly. Lord, our hope is not in our good works. Our hope is not in our church attendance. Our hope is not in any of these things. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, who is our refuge. We thank you for your work. We thank you for your life. We thank you for your sacrificial death. We pray that it would be the theme of our lives. In your name we pray, amen.